in that part of the program. So you can uh, see, I, or I hope you can uh, discern from what has been said that it is a very packed program uh, this morning that we have. Uh, we'll, of course, be delivering all the uh, uh, Islamic uh, angle to whatever we're discussing, and that will be mainly presented by our resident imam, Imam Toki Tanwil Khan. And now that I mentioned my name, I think I'll pass the mic on to him for the weather and uh, other news that may be circulating around in the Ambiya Muslim community or indeed elsewhere. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi uh, Yes, uh, Jazakla for uh, handing the mic over. And uh, just uh, uh, to start off, I wanted to just mention the weather. Uh, so this is uh, uh, from BBC Weather and the forecast is in London and the expectation uh, for this morning, um, as some of our uh, listeners would know as well who are driving to work as well, that today is expected to stray dry with a prolonged spells of wintry sunshine and uh, just a few areas of cloud around and it will uh, still be a cold day, so uh, still a lot of frost early in the morning so do take care uh, before setting off to work and the forecast for tonight is that tonight uh, we'll see less cold and uh, it will be dry with the largely clear skies at first and in the early hours patchy low cloud or high clouds bands will move in from the west so that's the weather uh, for this morning and uh, in terms of the news as our listeners know as well, that we like to go through some of the news which is happening uh, around the world, but also with regards to some of the news which is happening around, uh, with regards to the Amdiya Muslim community. And uh, um, certainly on the Friday mornings, we like to go through some of the uh, virtual meetings as Holiness has with the members of the Amdiya Muslim community around the world. Uh, But this uh, recent meeting which took place on uh, last Sunday on the 14th of January 2024, it was actually in person, uh, a group of youth members between the ages from 18 to 14 uh, had come from Connecticut, USA, and they were blessed to have this meeting with His Holiness, Azad Mirza Ahmed, head of the Amdiya Muslim community. Um, uh, and this was, uh, as I mentioned, this was a face-to-face meeting uh, which took place in Islamabad and Tilford, uh, UK. And His Holiness, he turned towards the youth uh, who proceeded to introduce themselves, such as Harish Qureshi was the first who mentioned that uh, uh, his father's name and he shared that he was pursuing a medical degree at Yale University and His Holiness inquired about any siblings and he responded that he had a younger brother seated behind him and recognizing his face, His Holiness asked about the upcoming wedding and uh, Harris confirmed that uh, it was his wedding that was soon to take place Um, and uh, also His Holiness also spoke to another uh, member of the youth who introduced himself and mentioned that he was in his second year of university and His Holiness asked about his field of study uh, to which he mentioned that he initially intended to pursue engineering but was currently undecided and he explained that he was contemplating pursuing civil pursuing civil or mechanical engineering. Upon hearing this, His Holiness remarked on the significant difference between the two uh, disciplines. Um, so you can see uh, you know, how in deeply His Holiness actually knows 
these members as well because a lot of these members they do write from all parts of the world and Azur uh, His Holiness recognizes the faces of individuals even from places such as USA and Azur knows that uh, you know they um, they requested for prayers regarding wedding and uh, you know he'd recognized them so it's 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 very good to see um, you know the the interaction His Holiness has with the youth and uh, on a lot of bases a lot of the youth members would consult His Holiness in matters relating to their career as well that uh, what would be the best uh, sort of option to take in terms of their career um, also uh, within this virtual uh, virtual meeting. His Holiness uh, also uh, spoke to the missionary Rizwan Khan who came from uh, Connecticut, uh, USA and uh, His Holiness asked about the size of the community in Connecticut to which he replied that uh, there are 349 members and His Holiness inquired if they were all scattered or uh, if there was a certain center or a mosque and to this uh, Imam Rizwan responded that there was a mosque and added that uh, the members were dispersed with some living 30 minutes away um, and some an hour away and even uh, an hour and a half away and he mentioned that 10 families reside within a 20 minute radius so that's just a brief glimpse of uh, the meetings and virtual meetings His Holiness has with the Amdiya, uh Muslim community around the world and uh, these are very beneficial and can be a source of guidance for uh, for all of the listeners listening and if you do want to uh, hear more on this you can go on alhakam.org or you can go on our YouTube channel on MTA News and uh, listen to some of the snippets of these meetings so yeah that is uh, do tune into that yes very interesting um, anything else happening I I was alarmed yesterday when I was looking things up that Ramzan is going to be starting on the 10th of March or thereabouts. Mm. It's come quite early. Yeah, yeah. I usually do my spring cleaning and <laughs> <laughs> that'll have to be delayed now. Um, uh, or had to be done, it have to be done early. Um, so that's something that uh, I still be looking Forward to. Uh, I mean, it, we've we're coming slowly coming out of that transition of those long hour fasts yes. <laughs> into a more. Um, this is this will mm. be something which, uh, you know, it, it'd be a bit more relaxed. Whereas, yes, uh, in the summer where you know the heat was oh, a lot yeah, more as yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 we're slowly coming out of mm. that transition. So, were you fasting when, uh, or were you too young when the uh, the times were uh, in July? The longest days, June and July. Actually, I, I remember uh, very well, and uh, I was actually in uh, the um, our institute in Jamiam, the UK, uh-huh. and in that time we had our exams. <laughs> so I was studying for my exams. I was fasting, uh-huh. um, and it was really hot as well. So I, I remember that. Um, but yeah, we we managed to managed yeah. to get past it. So, but uh, yeah, those were very uh, difficult days because there was very little time between the uh, opening of the fast mm. and then the keeping of the fast in mm. the morning. You know, uh, because you have to have your voluntary prayers, mm. so you only sleep for about two or three hours, and then you need to get up again. You need to get up again. Yeah. Um, so yes, it was yeah that was quite. Uh, but now it's I suppose it's getting easier. But then certain things have to be then delayed or be uh, be done earlier 
like your uh, like like cleaning and stuff. Anyway, um, um, there is the uh, the peace conference that's going to be taking place. I understand that is going to be taking place before Ramzan okay. as well. So this is um, an annual event mm, that uh, mm. the uh, the community organizes. Um, so that's uh, also happening. Um, as far as other news is concerned, well, uh, there's uh, I think two stories that have dominated uh, the last week, uh, ten days or two weeks. Um, this uh, government's Rwanda bill was something that was uh, quite prominent in our and uh, television screens and uh, uh, other media. Uh, the, the government uh, seems to be doggedly holding on to. Uh, this uh, Rwanda deportion bill uh, and is determined to bring it into law. Uh, the bill seeks to deport refugees and migrants to Rwanda to have their asylum claims heard and for resettlement there. Uh, despite protests within the ruling Conservative Party that is not strong enough or too extreme, according to others, it has managed to pass through the comments intact. Within it is the assertion that Rwanda is a safe country something that the Supreme Court had unanimously judged to be unsafe in November last year. As such a flagrant use of the majority the government has in the Commons is raising eyebrows in certain circles, more so because the bill is designed to deter, coming, uh, 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 deter people coming along to this country seeking asylum in boats, which is a fraction of the total number that are seeking refuge here. Why the Conservative insist in uh, pursuing this policy to placate its right wing is disputed. Uh, it is, according to some, a losing battle, simply a rod for the government's back that it is refusing to let go. Uh, its defenders say that immigration is one of the top three concerns expressed by voters on the doorstep, and this is a way to show that the Conservatives mean business. Critics contend that the best way to stop the boats um, is uh, to provide legal routes for those wishing to seek refuge in this country, which in many cases simply do not exist. To try and achieve that through passing dubious legislation is ill-advised. However, the government is adamant it managed to see off a potential rebellion on Wednesday when 11 Conservative MPs voted against the government, but the bill still uh, sailed through by 320 to 276, it still has a long way to go before the bill becomes law. The Lords have to scrutinise, the House of Lords have to scrutinise it, um, and they can take measures to block it long enough till the election when it may well be too late for any uh, flights from the UK carrying asylum seekers to Rwanda. So that's how the position stands with regard to this particular bill. We'll see how the... Um, the story unfolds in the coming weeks. And the other main story that was has been dominating our um, news, uh, news screens recently, uh, UK-based, is the post office scandal. Uh, this has dominated the news over the last two weeks, and it was prompted by an ITV documentary that exposed the excesses committed by the post office on its sub uh, on its sub postmasters it was when after it launched its horizon id system manufactured by a japanese firm called fujitsu for the uh, sub post offices um, errors came to rise with many sub uh, masters registering 
um, shortfalls in their accounts. They were accused of false accounting and stealing money, suspicions that the IT system was at fault um, uh, or uh, could be uh, could be accessed by others uh, were dismissed out of hand. It's emerged that the post office were aware of the misgivings about the defects of the system as early as 2013. Uh, seven years before the flow was exposed to the public. Over 900 sub-postmasters were uh, prosecuted. Several were con- convicted of theft or were forced to sign confessions for false accounting. Reputations were trashed, livelihoods were lost, and lengthy years of suffering were endured. Some died while waiting for justice. Others uh, killed themselves. Uh, all the time, the post office insisted that it is its Fujitsu software was secure. This, it transpired, was not true, and uh, the uh, sub-postmasters have been vindicated. The tables have turned, and it is the bosses of the post office and Fujitsu that are finding themselves to be in the firing line now. Uh, the current CEO, uh, CEO uh, chief executive of each, uh, Gareth Jenkins, I think, was uh, the person representing the um, uh, Fujitsu. Well, both uh, chief uh, uh, chief of um, uh, chief executives were hauled over to a parliamentary committee to answer questions, uh, and the then uh, chief executive Paula Venels, when this uh, uh, debacle unfolded, was forced to hand back a CBA. Sympathy, sympathy for the victims is now flowing. After struggling, struggling to get any compensation, there is a clamor 20 years on to now speed it up and provide meaningful financial retribution for what uh, they had suffered. Justice Secretary Alex Chalk told MP on Tuesday, um, he told the MPs on Tuesday he expected to make an announcement shortly on how best to accelerate the pardons and the payout. He went on to say there were truly exceptional uh, circumstances uh, when I was a backbencher, I was on, rec- on record as saying this is the most serious miscarriage of justice since the Guildford 4 and Birmingham 6. But the clue is there were four in the Guildford case. There were six in the Birmingham case. We are talking about hundreds. It is truly exceptional. It is truly unprecedented. And it will need an appropriate resolution. A Downing Street spokesman said all our focus continues to be on ensuring all those whose lives were torn apart have swifter, swifter access to compensation and justice. Don't know what your views are, but if you have any, then please ring in and share them with us. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight is the number, or you can uh, access us. Uh, what uh, table your table we use through the um, um, X platform. Uh, the uh, handle is Voice of Islam UK. Anything else? Yes, uh, uh, there's a very interesting article on review. Um, I mean, we will be going into this discussion later on as well. Uh, but uh, on on the 14th of January, uh, this actually marked the hundred days um, of the of Gaza Gaza Day and 100 days of mass murder of devastation of a population slowly being buried under the rubble of their own one's homes um, but what about the millions who are still alive and awaiting their fate they look at the rubble knowing that the possibility of them being under it one day is very real because the statistics are stacked against them one way or another 
And <laughs> according to the UN, as of the 12th of January uh, 2024, 23,708 Gazans killed, 60, 60,005 injured, and 2.2 million at risk of starvation, and 939,000 at emergency levels, zero access to clean water in the north. The math uh, speaks for itself in a population of 2.3 million. Nearly every person is starving, injured or dead. And while the numbers alone are staggering, imagine for a moment what it's like to be one of those 2.3 million. Those of us hearing about Gaza in the news or reading about them can truly understand their struggles and particularly because Gazans have mostly been cut off from the world. Their voices seldom heard and communications are frequently down, their borders are blocked and channels uh, for reaching the world outside or for the outside world to reach them are particularly non-existent. And it is for this very reason that we've been working to give a platform to voices of Gaza, to let them speak for themselves and for their truth to ring clearly above all else. As one can imagine, it hasn't been easy to make contact with those on the ground in Gaza. And in a most startling reality, we found the easiest way to find people in Gaza Gazan was to search. I am still alive on social media and Gazans on somehow can manage to find a cellular connection are posting I am still alive every day so that uh, when a day comes they haven't posted the hope is that someone somewhere will know of their fate and we were finally able to reach uh, Hamad a Gazan who couldn't who had been displaced four times and is now living in a tent with his family so Hamid, he shared some of the realities he and his family are facing in a, in a candidate interview. And he said that my house has been destroyed and my family's home has been destroyed and my relatives' houses have been destroyed, our farms have been destroyed, all of our dreams have been destroyed. But we will continue fighting firmly to establish peace and we will establish peace. Hamid, he also shared that neighborhood were homes where homes have been destroyed are now 10 cities and the phrase unfortunately being quite literal the tents are all that's left and he said that we're in a tent and it gets very cold at night and it does not even have any of the basic necessities so you know this is just a glimpse of mm. the article itself but uh, it goes to show uh, some of just a glimpse into the reality of what is actually happening there and uh, how difficult it is for 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 um, you know the, our brothers and sisters who are mm. uh, actually alive and you know they they are there um, you know that they have to live in tents and it's mm. very difficult uh, mm-hmm. but we will um, be discussing that as well in our second segment mm-hmm. uh, in much detail with, with the experts as well that will be joining us later. That's in the review of religions. I, I read that article. It's a very moving article. Mm. Um, and uh, it uh, very graphically um, shows the kind of um, misery mm. that is being inflicted on uh, on Gazans and also shows their, their resilience and... Um, uh, their um, their patience mm. uh, 
Um, so it's a very, very interesting, remarkable article. Um, there is, a, well, there are another couple of stories. One is, uh, I suppose, a, um, a health story that looks to, <coughs> to cancer. When, when I was growing up, um, and this is many years ago, diagnosis of cancer uh, was a death sentence. Um, however, nowadays, this is no longer the case, and if caught early, many recover fully to lead normal lives. Among the treatments that is being given is chemotherapy, where large quantities of medicine are pumped into the body. Though it can be effective, it is time-consuming, requires a visit to the hospital, and renders great weakness to the patient. Now a new treatment is being made available um, through uh, medicine being delivered via rucksack in one go rather than just in hospital. It is called the Blina Backpack and used to treat certain kinds of leukemia. The drug is an immunotherapy that seeks out cancer cells so the body's own immune system can recognize and destroy them. And this uh, death hunt hunt is precisely targeted. Healthy cells are untouched, unlike in chemotherapy. Uh, Belina comes in a bag of liquid administered through a thin plastic tube, and that remains running um, into a vein in the patient's arm for many months. A battery-operated pump controls how quickly the drug trickles into the bloodstream, uh, back and last days. All uh, of the kit can be carried in a backpack smaller than an A4 textbook, making it uh, fully portable. It is also being administered to children, and Chief Investigator and Consultant Pediatric Hematologist Professor A.J. Vora said... Chemotherapies are poisons that kill the leukemia cells but also kill and damage normal cells. And that is what causes their side effects. Uh, Blina to uh, Tumamab is a gentler kind of treatment. So uh, there are new treatments coming along. We welcome them and long may they continue in alleviating the suffering uh, of those people who sadly uh, come to be diagnosed with this particular uh, disease. Um, there is uh, one final story. We're going to be dealing with conflict and peace uh, uh, later on in the course of this program, in fact. Uh, uh, but um, there is um, a conflict brewing in South Asia. Um, a spat has erupted between Iran and Pakistan, which is worrying in case it expands into a conflict much further uh, afield. It followed explosions in Iran on 3rd of January where some 100 people died. Responsibility was claimed by a terrorist group which Iran claims was based in Pakistan, leading it to um, bomb the area on Tuesday and kill two people. Uh, Pakistan retaliated two days later and yesterday launched a missile attack on Iranian territory. Iran had uh, insisted its strikes were aimed only at uh, Jaish al-Adhar, Army of Justice, an ethnic Baluch Sunni Muslim militant group uh, that has carried out attacks inside Iran and not Pakistan citizens. It condemned yesterday's Pakistani retaliatory attack, which it said killed three women, two men and four children who were not Iranian. The country's foreign ministry later said it was committed to good neighborly relations with Pakistan. However, it called on Islamabad to prevent the establishment of bases and armed terrorist groups 
on its soil. In its own statement, Pakistan's army said the precision strikes were conducted with drones, rockets, and long-range missiles and targeted uh, the Balochistan Liberation Army and uh, the Balochistan Liberation Front, both are groups of uh, are part of a decades-long struggle for greater autonomy in Balochistan. Um, um, Pakistan's foreign ministry said his strikes around the Iranian city of Sarawan had come in light of credible intelligence uh, of impending large-scale terrorist activities and added that it fully respects Iran's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Uh, there's much conflict in the world at present. It will uh, do the nations well, both these nations else, if they could bury their differences. And as uh, some of the rhetoric suggests, an approachment would be preferable the sooner the better. China, Turkey and uh, um, Afghanistan have all also echoed this sentiment and called for restraint uh, and dialogue. So let's hope that uh, that is what uh, actually uh, emerges and that uh, this particular spat does come to an end very, very quickly. Um, we have to move on and took look at uh, the uh, main stories that uh, we were going to be uh, reviewing today. Uh, the first uh, topic that we had to consider is the Holy Prophet and his deep love for the Holy Quran. Um, the, um, there's much, I suppose, that can be uh, said about this. Um, uh, um, we will be talking to um, uh, a number of uh, experts, uh, in particular um, Reem Shaki we, we were able to speak to earlier. Um, the Holy Quran contains all the light uh, that is necessary in facing the darkness of this time. It teaches us, uh, our, uh, um, well, and it teaches, its teachings are shining like the sun and it has the cure for all spiritual diseases within it. There is no divine guidance left out from it and one who follows it perfectly purifies uh, his heart and establishes a union with Allah. Thereafter, a person begins to experience God and in the face of difficulty, their prayers are answered by God. Even if one prays a thousand times in difficulty, God answers such a person with love a thousand times. Uh, through his teachings, a person is purified and all human weaknesses uh, and is filled <coughs> with, uh, with, with purity. Um, now, we did discuss this, as I mentioned, with uh, Reem Shraiki, and this is what he had to say uh, when we spoke to her. So we are joined today at the Voice of Islam radio station by Sister Reem, uh, who is a regular contributor to the Voice of Islam radio station. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. So in this segment, we're looking at the Holy Prophet and his deep love for the Holy Quran. So Sister Reem, can you elaborate on the significance of the Holy Quran in the life of the Holy Prophet? Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Uh, you know, as the Holy Quran was revealed to the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and the blessings of Allah be upon him, and he is the one who understood it the best, he followed it to the letter and soul, that his character was the Quran, as his wife, Hazrat Aisha, stated. In addition, she said also, he was a walking Quran, as we believe that the Holy Quran is valid for every time and era. This means that the one who was a walking Quran, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and the blessings of Allah be upon him, will remain a role model for us forever. Absolutely. And uh, how did the Holy Prophet, his deep love for the Holy Quran manifest 
in his daily actions and the decisions he made on a daily basis. If you can also elaborate on that. Yes, uh, you know the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and the blessings of Allah be upon him, had a deep love for the Holy Quran, which was reflected in his daily actions and decisions. He would recite the Holy Quran always, and he would also encourage others to read and learn it, and would often recite it in public gatherings while he is traveling, on his ride, or wherever he is, and he used to teach it in his sermons as well. And the Holy Prophet, peace and the blessings of Allah be upon him, would also make decisions based on the teachings of the Holy Quran and would use it as a guide for his actions. Uh, For example, he would often use verses from the Holy Quran to resolve disputes between uh, people. And uh, he also emphasized the importance of understanding the Quran and would encourage people to reflect on its teachings and apply them to their daily, daily lives as uh, the Holy Quran is the source of guidance for all Muslims and it contains the answers to all of life's questions. Absolutely. And even uh, regarding the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, we see that he was an embodiment of the, of the teachings of the Holy Quran. Exactly. So how do, you think, how do you think his personal connection with the, with the Quran influenced his leadership style and also his interaction with others? Um, the Holy Prophet, peace and the blessings of Allah be upon him, personal connection with the Holy Quran played a significant role in shaping his leadership style and interactions with, uh, with others. Um, the Quran served as a guide for him and he used it to make decisions and uh, resolve conflicts, as I said earlier. And, um, you know, his leadership style was characterized by humi- uh, humility, compassion, justice and mercy as he was commanded by Allah in the Holy Quran. And uh, he was known for his ability to listen to others and to make decisions uh, based on the best interests of the community. And uh, you know, the Holy Prophet's interaction with others were marked by respect, tolerance, and kindness. He treated everyone with dignity and respect regardless of their social status or background. And the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, leadership style and interactions with others continue to serve as inspiration for people around the world and whatever he did was based on his being a walking quran indeed thank you so much sister uh, i just have one last question for you mm-hmm. uh, which is that in what ways did the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him demonstrate mm-hmm. his commitment to the quranic teachings and provide Specific, if you can also provide specific examples of situation where his mm-hmm. love for the Quran guided his behavior. Yeah, the Holy Prophet's peace and the blessings of Allah be upon him, love for the Quran was a central part of his life and his teachings. He demonstrated his commitment to the Quranic teachings in many ways, and his love for the Quran guided his behavior in all aspects of his life. For example, he always forgave people and laid Fourth, the greatness, uh, the greatest example of forgiveness at the time of the victory of Mecca, when he said to the Meccans, "No blame shall lie on you this day," and this is of course from the Holy Quran, and he said these words to such people who had carried out severe torture and cruelties against him and against his companions. So the Holy Quran is full of such great teachings 
and uh, the practice and life and character of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and the blessings of Allah be upon him. And his every moment is witness to the fact that he always practiced and preached the teachings of the Holy Quran, which are of love, kindness and peace. Sister Reem, thank you so much for joining this discussion and uh, sharing your expertise on this subject. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Right, so that was um, an interview that was conducted um, with uh, Reem Shraiki. Um, Imantagui, you did uh, that interview. Um, is there anything that you want to add uh, to this particular topic? Yes, so, uh, you know, this is a topic where, uh, you know, you could, uh, honestly, if you look at any aspect of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, um, y- you know, you could you could go into a whole very lengthy lecture on the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, as, uh, you know, when when you do look at his character, you can see some of his high moral qualities. And uh, I just wanted to read out a little, um, there's an abstract from the life of Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, which uh, shows you know, a brief glimpse of the high moral qualities of the Prophet himself. And we, we see that he was always very patient in adversity and he was very discouraged by adverse circumstances, nor did he permit any personal desire to get hold over him. Uh, it has been related already that his father had died before his birth and his mother had died while he was a very little uh, child. And uh, up to the age of eight, he was in the guardianship of his grandfather. And the and after the la- latter's death, he was taken uh, care by his uncle Abu Talib and both on account of natural affection and also because he has been specially admonished in that behalf by his father Abu Talib always watched over his nephew uh, with care and indulgence but his wife was not affected by these considerations to the same degree and it often happened that she would distribute she would dis- 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 distribute something among her own children leaving out their little cousin and if Abu Talib um, chance to come into the house on such an occasion, he would find his little nephew uh, sitting apart, a perfect picture of dignity and without a trace of uh, sulkiness or grievance on his face. And the uncle, yielding to the claims of affection and recognizing his responsibility, would run to the nephew, clap him to his bosom and cry out that, do you do pay attention to this child of mine also. Do pay attention to this child of mine also. And such incidents were not uncommon, and those who were witnesses to them were unanimous in their testimony that the young Muhammad, peace be upon him, never gave any indication that he was in any way affected by them, or that he was in any sense jealous by of his cousins, uh, and later in his life, when he was in a position to do so, he would take upon himself the care and upbringing of two of his uncle's sons, Ali and and uh, and Jafar, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, and discharge this responsibility in the most excellent manner. And the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, throughout his life, had to encounter a succession of bitter experiences. He was an orphan. His mother died while he was still a small child and he lost his grandfather at the age of eight years 
After marriage, he had to bear the loss of several children, one after the other. And then his beloved and devoted wife, uh, Khatija, peace be upon, uh, may, may, uh, may Allah the Almighty be pleased with her, died. And some of, some of the wives he married after, uh, after Khatija, Khatija's death died during his lifetime. And towards the close of his life, he had to bear the loss of his son, Ibrahim. He bore, he bore all these losses and the calamities cheerfully, and none of them affected in the least degree uh, either his high resolve or the urbanity of his distribution. His private sorrows would never vent in public, and he always met everybody with a uh, Benjamin countenance and treated all alike with... Um, uninformed benevolence and on one occasion he observed a woman who had lost a child occupied in loud mourning over her child's grave he admonished her to be patient and to accept god with god's will as supreme and the woman did not uh, did not know that she was being addressed by the holy prophet peace be upon her and she replied that if you had suffered the loss of a child as uh, as I have, you would have realized how difficult it is to be patient under such an affliction. And the Prophet observed and, and uh, he said that I have suffered the loss not of one but of seven children and passed on, except when he referred to his own losses or misfortunes in this indirect manner. He never cared to dwell upon them, nor did he permit them in any manner to interfere with his un seizing service to mankind and his cheerful sharing of their burden. So this one small little abstract, it just goes to show how the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, as the Holy Quran testifies uh, to the fact as well that it says that وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةِ mean that we have sent thee not but as a mercy for all of peoples and even when it comes to the Holy Quran, uh, Hazrat Aisha, peace be upon her, there is a very famous narration where she said that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he is an embodiment of the Holy Quran. So he he taught what he preached. And uh, we see that this high resolve um, that was very much manifested in his life, it was through, through uh, the teachings of the Holy Quran that he showed such character um, and uh, we see that even uh, when it came to dealing with other people as well he his love was for all people um, we all know the uh, famous story of once when a funeral was passing by the Holy Prophet peace be upon him and uh, uh, he, he got up immediately and the companion who was sitting uh, beside him Asked the Prophet, peace be upon him, that, Oh Prophet, why do you why do you get up when you know this is a funeral of a Jewish man? And to this, the Prophet, peace be upon him, replied, that uh, is is he not a human being? And although this example itself is very small, it just goes to show the love of the Prophet, peace be upon him, that he had for humanity. Um, similarly, there is another beautiful narration when a a group uh, of Christians from Najran came to meet the Prophet, peace be upon him. And uh, upon meeting the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, 
they they realized that it was their time for prayer and they became very agitated and uh, to this the prophet very graciously offered his own mosque and he said that you can use my own mosque and you can pray there so the, these are such examples which show that you know these were the core teachings of Islam and not uh, not the whole concept of jihad that we found nowadays that uh, you know it gives the wrong impression of Islam that Islam is an extremist religion and it uh, you know it, it propagates acts of violence i was listening to uh, voice of islam just yesterday as well um and it was it was a discussion of ibrahim nunan sahab and uh, one one question was uh, ibrahim sahab was discussing was on the same subject of the holy prophet peace be upon him and he mentioned that on he he does a lot of um, uh, you know propagating uh, Islam or just going towards the streets and uh, giving flyers out and he said that one such person I'm not sure if it was a, a Jewish Jewish person I think maybe it was a Jewish person and he said to Ibrahim Sub that you know why the 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 whole cause of violence or everything which is going on in this world is because of this man referring to God forbid prophet Muhammad peace be upon him and he said that uh, th- this is what I perceive to be and Ibrahim uh, Noonan he then gave him a book uh, Life Life of Muhammad and uh, he said that go read this and uh, you know t- tell me what you tell me if you think the same uh, when you come back now he mentioned two incidents I think this was another incident but he mentioned from his incident that uh, he had someone who had a completely very negative view and he gave the book of life of Muhammad but when he came back the next time he completely admitted that uh, Brother Ibrahim I was completely wrong and after reading this book life of Muhammad it has completely changed my view of uh, what I thought of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him so it just goes to show you that uh, sometimes um, you know a lot of even a lot of the opponents they they make these claims out of ignorance and maybe what they read on social media or what they've heard from a critic's point of view but in actual fact if you read uh, the writings of the prophet peace be upon him uh, you you will see that you know as the holy quran testifies that he was a mercy for the whole of mankind mm. and uh, I mean, everyone knows that, uh, that there is uh, that famous book as well, Brother Walid, you would mm. know, uh, which shows a hundred uh, inf- yes. personalities in the world and the Prophet mm-hmm. is uh, on top of that list. Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, um, but um, I, um, because of uh, our time constraints, we have to move on. Uh, we uh, need to go on to the... And next topic uh, at this moment is about the uh, establishing peace between uh, Israel and Hamas, whether we can do this. Um, We talked to um, Jonathan Randall earlier about this, and this is what he had to say. The first question that I would have for you is, for the benefit of our listeners, could you kindly tell us about your background and your relationship to Israel and how this conflict has affected you as a person? and your relationship with others within the community? Sure. Well, um, 
I am a comedian and an actor and an artist living in New York City. I was raised uh, as in an Orthodox Jewish household in Miami mm-hmm. Beach, Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I went to Israel on three separate occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always told a lot of different things about Israel, which I learned later in life weren't all necessarily true. Yep. Um, the con, you know, it like, you know, I, I'm I'm reluctant to even call it a conflict. Yeah. But what's happening in in Israel and in Palestine, uh, especially since the October seventh attack, mm-hmm. it has affected some of my relationships because you know people are upset with my views and mm-hmm. my perspective and how I care deeply about Palestinian human rights. Yep. And how I am uh, very vocal about the crimes committed by the state of Israel and the Israeli military and the violent extremist Israeli settlers that live in the West Bank and are daily committing violence against Palestinians that live there. (laughs) So I have had family and friends who don't want to speak with me anymore, Mm -hmm. who are angry with me. Yeah. I've had some backlash in the community as an artist with different places not wanting me to perform there, uh, losing out on some sorting gigs, and also having members of that community that, you know, believe more strongly in supporting Israel than supporting human rights that Mm. also, you know, have been looking down on me and giving me the cold shoulder. I see. No, I understand. Thank you for that. I know it must be difficult for you right now as well. Um, obviously, you speaking out against the atrocities that are not as difficult as it is for the people living uh, in Gaza and the people living in the West Bank. Absolutely, I, th- I think we need to keep that in mind as well. Thank you so much for that. Um, if if I move on towards Hamas and their, um, if if you can kind of shed a little bit of light, I think we already are aware. But um, your perspective: Who are uh, Hamas or who is Hamas, and uh, what was their role in the October the seventh attacks? Well, you know, Hamas is different to different people. Hmm. Of course, they are the governing power in Gaza. Uh, many people in Gaza consider them freedom fighters, mm-hmm. consider them the resistance, mm-hmm. uh, which I do think, you know, Palestinians do have the right to resist the oppression of Israel. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, though, in the West, certainly in Israel, they view Hamas as a terrorist organization. I think the issues that I personally have with Hamas aren't so much as that they are uh, the resistance of the Palestinian people. I think they are some of the only people that are fighting on behalf of the Palestinian people. But I do have some issues with their methods. I do have issues with their ideology. Of course. I do have issues with some of the things that have happened with them and women uh, when it comes to honor killings, uh, the way they view members of the LGBT community, and also with how I do believe that they want to keep the Palestinian people down and they don't allow them to have a better quality of life because they want them to fester hatred for Israel, and I think that Hamas 
needs to care more about its people and the lives that they have right now and making sure that they're not living in such Absolutely. Uh, poverty. Absolutely, definitely. That's that very well put. Thank you so much. Um, I think we have this kind of notion, especially in the West, a lot of people have this in their minds, uh, that um, implementing a ceasefire is giving a free pass to the crimes that Hamas have committed. Do you, do you believe this is the case? Absolutely not. I do not believe that no. at all. Um, I don't think that the crimes of Hamas represent all of the people of Gaza, certainly not all of the Palestinian people. Mm -hmm. And I do not believe in the slightest that the civilians of Gaza should have to pay the price for the actions of Hamas. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, what role are governments playing, particularly the US, playing? Uh, and what role should it be playing when influencing people's individual decisions, such as the right to boycott? And uh, what are your views on boycotting? Um, I believe in boycotting. I think it's an amazing uh, example of nonviolent protest. Yep. Um, I think that Americans' right to boycott should be protected by the First Amendment under freedom of speech. Yep. Um, unfortunately, uh, we are kind of losing the right to boycott, yeah. specifically when it comes to the state of Israel, where over in half the states in America, uh, you mm -hmm. could lose your job, uh, you could lose customers for boycotting Israel, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, America, the U.S., has given more money to Israel since 1948 than any other country. Yeah. Uh, APAC, a pro-Israel lobbying group, uh, gives tons of money to Israel, uh, to, I mean, excuse me, to American politicians, mm -hmm. to influence yeah. for pro-Israel. And I think that America should have a greater influence on promoting uh, free speech, yeah. uh, expression, and individuality than conforming particularly to a foreign nation. Yep, no, definitely, definitely. I completely agree with that. Um, is it important for more Jews to speak up against uh, settler violence in specific? Um, and um, is it difficult to speak up? I do not believe that it is difficult to speak up against settler violence at all. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really a shame that more Jewish people don't speak up against it. Mm -hmm. um, it is a stain on Judaism. Mm -hmm. The acts committed by these uh, terrorists, Israeli settlers, do mm -hmm. not reflect the values of Judaism. Uh, and they don't reflect how any human being should conduct themselves in a moral manner. They're violent. They're racist. Yeah. And uh, they need to be more widely condemned, not only by Jewish people, but by the whole international community. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, just, just going on to the last question now that we have. Uh, for you today and that's um, is Israel democratic as it claims to be as many who speak up are often penalized for doing so um, I don't think it's as democratic as it wants to claim I know yeah. Israel always wants to say that it's you know the only democracy in the Middle East yeah 
Uh, I think maybe it's more like it's the most like a democracy in the Middle East, and that's even being generous. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there isn't equality in Israel. Uh, Arab people are second-class citizens, and that's not even talking about those living under the apartheid system in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we're seeing now with, like, over 110 journalists have been killed in Gaza. Yeah. Uh, more journalists were killed there in the first 10 weeks than have been killed by any country yeah. in a year ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is kind of against freedom of press. And of course, freedom of speech isn't really as it should be in Israel, where you could get in trouble, arrested, just for even posting a Palestinian flag emoji. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they definitely don't want people speaking out against the crimes of Israel against the ongoing human rights violations. Mm -hmm. And in Israel, when you favor one ethnicity over another, that can never be a democracy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jonathan. Uh, You have spared your time. You've uh, you've sacrificed your time for us. And I I think our listeners are definitely going to benefit from your input. Um, especially your perspective as a practicing Jew as well. So I really appreciate that. Um, and uh, I hope you have a great Well, I should say I'm not a practicing Jew. Oh, I am Jewish. Okay. I'm more of a cultural Jew okay. than a religious Jew. Okay. So I wasn't aware of that. I'm, I apologize for that. Um, if that's, uh, no problem. Yeah. It's not an offense that I take at all, but I don't okay. want to misrepresent myself. Oh, d- 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 perfect. Right, so that was uh, our conversation with uh, Jonathan Randall and his news. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show of the Voice of Islam with uh, Imam Tokit Tanvir and myself. Uh, our leader at the time is approaching three minutes uh, plus eight. Uh, we are or have been trying to address the second of our main topics, which is about can Israel and Hamas achieve peace. Um, I'm pleased to uh, note that uh, we have. Uh, uh, a contributor, uh, an expert on the line, Morgan Cooper. Uh, Morgan Cooper is an American Christian living in the occupied West Bank with two small children. Uh, her husband ran a La Vie, a La Vie Cafe in uh, Ramallah for 12 years, where she was manager and chef before they closed, and she went to work full-time building on her project Handmade Palestine, a social enterprise to help uh, artisans, mostly women, generate income through craft making and uh, preserve traditional skills. So thank you very much for joining us, Morgan. Um, uh, good morning. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning and wa alaikum salam. All right. For the benefit of our listeners, can you introduce uh, yourself and uh, tell us a bit more uh, about how you came to move to Palestine, how your experience has been for someone who grew up uh, in the United States and then... Uh, uh, transported herself to uh, well the Middle East. Yes. Um, so you know most American Christians. I'm 43 years old. So you know when I was a kid, especially maybe not so much this year, but previously, most American Christians are sort of raised in a default Zionism. So it's not a very um, well thought through position or. Um, there's, sorry, there's a bit of an echo, so I'm going to take off my earphones so that I can just speak. Um, we're just Christian Zionism, where basically the church says, well, we 
support Israel because it says so in the Bible. And I remember when I was like, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old, I asked my father um, what's going on when I saw some news coverage of Israelis and Palestinians fighting. What, what is, what's the story there? What's the history? And my father's response was, well, they probably don't even know why they're fighting anymore. It's been going on for thousands of years. And I later came to understand, and my father later came to understand, that that's just part of the Zionist propaganda. And it's, it's based on telling people that this is a land without a people for a people without a land, which is totally not true. As we all know, Palestinians have always been there. And it's also um, based on, or it's very important to bring in religion and say that this is just an ancient, basically, feud between two religions, Muslims and Jews. We just totally erase Christians from that narrative. And it's intractable. We cannot fix it. We cannot change it. There's no point in trying to solve it. And this is the ideology I was really raised with. And that's incredibly problematic because that, that narrative says, well, don't bother learning about it because there's nothing you can do to make change. So with that very limited kind of upbringing, after university, I found myself traveling around Europe. Uh, I had studied abroad and I wanted to go back. I was traveling around Europe with no money, so just kind of working, traveling, working, traveling. And I had a friend from college who was teaching English at a Catholic school in Ramallah for one year. And he was really unhappy and hadn't made many friends. And so his mom reached out and said, hey, why don't you go visit Brennan? And I was like, well, if there's a host family and a job, I'm in. So I booked a flight and I really, honest to God, did not know when I booked that flight if I was going to Palestine or Pakistan because I chose to fly into Tel Aviv, Israel. And I had to call him back and say, wait, where is it you are again? And then I was like, yes, okay, this makes sense. I'm going to, yeah, Israel, that's so exciting. And he was like, uh, <laughs> not really. So with that incredible level of ignorance, as a person who'd never even heard Salaamu Alaikum growing up in a small Christian white town, a person who didn't know what hummus was at 20, it was 22, almost 23 maybe. I mean, <clears throat> This incredible ignorance. I landed in Tel Aviv airport, occupied Lib airport, and I began this incredible and rather painful journey learning about Palestine from Palestinians. I had the most incredible host family. For the first five years I was in Palestine, I lived with them, and they're Palestinian-American Muslims who moved back to Palestine to raise their children in their culture and their religion. That's it was this incredible introduction to food, language, religion, and beautiful. And people ask me, people expect that I moved to Palestine for my husband. And I always tell them, no, I actually fell in love with a woman who I called Imni, my mother, for the first five years and in love with her children. And they adopted me truly and completely. And I decided that I wanted to stay. I wanted to come back always and that this one would be my home. There were values in Palestine, in Palestinian culture at that time, that had really disappeared from America. You, know, you didn't see a homeless person. You didn't see hungry people. People took care of each other. There was this incredible community that came out of the first intifada, and actually an entire 76 years of living as an occupied people, where people take care of each other, family units, clan units, even entire villages do care for each other in the face of this incredible violence of occupation. So that's kind of how I found myself there. And I went through this. I'm still, I guess, 
learning. I mean, even if it's not a political knowledge, I'm always learning about traditional knowledge and culture, and especially Arabic, you know, it's very difficult. So I think Palestine will be my classroom for the rest of my life. Mm. Can you talk, talk about your work, uh, particularly with the, uh, I hope that I pronounce this right, Mashjar uh, Juthur uh, and uh, Handmade Palestine? Sure. So Mashjar Jadur, it means a place of trees, Mashjar, and the mm. word Jadur means roots. It means literal roots, like of a tree, and it also means cultural roots. So my husband and I decided to pull our entire life savings from running the restaurant, and we bought land at the very edge of Ramallah. And this is land where the families of Ramallah traditionally would have gone in the summers and they would have uh, farmed. They would have harvested their grapes, their figs, all of the uh, heirloom fruits that they grew out there. And they would have stayed there the entire summer and slept um, overnight and, and prepared for the winter. And my husband's father did not have land. Though my husband is from the founding families of Ramallah, he always says that <laughs> he's one of the only people who didn't have land in Ramallah. Hmm. So it was this dream of his to buy land. And this is not something as an American that I really could understand. This idea of how connected you are to the land and through the trees to the land and how important that was for my husband have this plot of land and plant trees in his ancestors' soil. And so we created this this space. It's now become 21 Dunham, and it's a publicly accessible nonprofit where we protect and conserve nature, but we really work on protecting and conserving natural heritage, so traditional knowledge about the land, traditional agricultural practices, foraging practices, while also teaching people about conservation. And we couldn't get any funding for it. We've still never been able to get funding because in Palestine, funders want to support emergency aid and humanitarian because we have a huge crisis constantly. Constantly, Israeli occupation creates a new crisis for us. And so it's a huge business. And all of the aid money goes into that. So we decided that we wanted to be self-sustainable. So we opened up a little display in our restaurant selling handicrafts and we thought well we're going to support women artisans to generate income and we're going to fundraise so that we can pay the expenses of planting and caring for trees and having a worker up there and building a fence and, and then handmade palestine went from being a little display to, of five women artisans crafts to being now 35 artisan groups which is hundreds of artisans across the West Bank and Gaza and being sold in a website that's handmadepalestine.com. And last year, we sold $600,000. It's the first year we ever came close to that kind of sale. And the, that money, I'm a volunteer running it. That money went 100% into the Palestinian economy in supporting artisans and supporting an, a nature conservation site. So it's just been, become this amazing initiative. Hmm. Um, things have, have taken a dramatic change um, since October the 7th. Um, how do you feel towards the UK and the, uh, the United States in terms of this support for the IDF? Uh, it's so 
difficult to put that into words. Um, you know, you have two two experiences. One is that, like, Handmade Palestine and all of the artisans we work with would not have been able to benefit in the way they have without the incredible solidarity of people around the world. You know, our projects have gone from being very, very small, barely surviving projects into having so much support. We had 110 people adopt olive trees on the land last year. I mean, that's from having 20 the year before. I'm sorry, it's raining really heavily right now. Um, that is the direct result of human beings around the world saying, we support Palestine and we want to help. And so they donate money to aid groups or they try to buy from Palestinian businesses. And, and that's been incredible since October 7th. And that's you know, a large customer base in the UK and the US. And I have the most beautiful emails on a daily basis from customers around the world expressing incredible solidarity, heartwarming solidarity. On the other hand, you have our blind, deaf, and greedy governments of the UK and the US and many European nations, basically all of the colonial countries. You have them supporting Israel and this genocide, sending weapons. The UK sent this spy plane over Gaza as if they don't have enough trauma with drones and Israeli um, military planes. I mean, it's, it's really mind-blowing. I cannot understand how in 2023, with millions of people taking to the streets across the world, and especially London, man, I see London, and I cannot understand how our governments are so arrogant to refuse to listen to the people and to, to the great contrary to continue to to be complicit in the genocide of the people of Gaza and to be completely funding and supporting with their own military powers this genocide, this ethnic cleansing. So, you know, I have a lot of anger and even more than that, maybe as a U.S. citizen myself, a lot of grief, a lot of despair towards my government who refuses to hear me. I, I have emailed my senators and representatives saying, I am a U.S. citizen, my children are U.S. citizens, and we are endangered. And they don't care. They truly do not care. They simply want to support Israel. Yes, very sad. Uh, we hope the attitudes uh, will change and that we delivered from this despair that you're mentioning. Um, I wish you all the best in your work in uh, in Palestine. Uh, thank, thank you very you much. So thank you very thank much you. for Can coming I on. Uh, yes, uh, please do if you want. Yes. Yes. This will actually only change when the people, protesting is not enough, when the people insist on boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Uh-huh. And, and again, you know, I know this is an Islamic radio, so I would like to say that I am very aware that this is not an Islamic issue. Uh-huh. This is not a, an issue for Muslims. I'm speaking as a Christian, and I hope that we can all together bring more Christians because they are really part of the problem, Christian Zionism. And we need to convince people that boycott, divestment, and sanctions is the only way to end the 76 years of occupation of the Palestinian people. Thank you so much for letting me have this. Thank you very much. Yes, it is a human issue, so it is relevant to to Muslims and to all people, basically. Um, Yes, thank you very much for that contribution.
Right. Um, we 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 have uh, another uh, expert on the line. Uh, it's uh, uh, the uh, chairman of uh, Humanity First, a charity that has been working in the occupied ter- uh, charities. Uh, the chairman of Humanity First is Dr. Hasiz Afiz. He's on the line with us. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum for coming on to the show. Alaikum salam. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, tell us, um, what's been the uh, response of Humanity First uh, in, in in Gaza? Sorry, I, I lost you there for a moment. So um, I was asking you about uh, the response of Humanity First, the work of Humanity First in Gaza, particularly the work that you've been conducted before uh, the war started. So thank you. So Humanity First, uh, as you mentioned, is an international disaster response and development NGO headquartered in Surbiton in the United Kingdom, spread across 60 countries. Uh, our work in the occupied Palestinian territories has been going on for at least 10 plus years. Uh, prior to the 7th of October, our work has been in Gaza on a number of sectors, the uh, water and sanitation sector, the uh, health sector, the sustainable employment sector, and the agriculture sector. So in terms of water, as, you, as most of your listeners will know, uh, before the war, you now more than 97% of the water in Gaza is unfit to drink. It is all sanitated water, and the aquifer that provides the water for the whole of Gaza is heavily, heavily polluted. So we have worked with uh, partners such as Amira in the US to provide water desalination units uh, across northern Gaza, these have been providing clean water for hundreds of thousands of people. And, um, and um, interesting, despite the horrific, horrific bombing in northern Gaza, uh, we recently learned uh, that one of our units is still actually functioning, despite the unbelievable bombing, and it's still providing uh, clean water. Uh, it runs on solar power uh, in, uh, in, in Gaza City. That's one area. The other area has been agricultural support. Uh, so the land, uh, land area of Gaza is very, very small. There are 25 miles by 5 miles, probably one of the most densely populated areas on Earth. So trying to get agricultural support is not easy in the limited supply of land. So we work with our colleagues to provide roof gardens on top of people's roofs. They're basically polytunnels that are providing uh, vegetables, fruit, for families that can then sell that for income, uh, use that for their own family uh, sort of needs, uh, and with that income, they're able to support their families. The other area is support for education, particularly those people that are disadvantaged, uh, people with visual impairment. Uh, We have a IT lab in northern Gaza that provides uh, direct access to the World Wide Web using Braille technology, allowing people that are unable to see to be able to communicate with the outside world and to engage with the world as well. So that's just a high level of some of the work prior to the war. Excellent. And and uh, what's it like working with the people of Gaza and uh, what's their response been like? You ask a very uh, a question that brings you to tears. If I answer it, I'll try to remain professional as I can. The simple answer is, the Palestinians in Gaza are probably one of the most wonderful people I have ever worked with in my humanitarian career over the last two decades. 
they are hugely warm people. They are highly educated people. Completely against the narrative that sadly we we hear, unfortunately. Uh, and they are a very resilient people. This is prior to the war, and now currently during the war. By that I mean uh, the people that don't complain, the people that get up and just get the job done. Uh, they're people that are very, how can I say, they use a lot of initiative, uh, they, they think on their feet, they, they try to get the best out of a difficult situation. Considering they've been living under a blockade for 17 years, uh, so, the, so they have to think of innovative ways of, of trying mm. to make themselves survive and make ends meet. Yeah, working with them, meeting them, knowing them, our own humanity first staff, they're an amazingly resilient people. Mm. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Imam Tokir is uh, with me. He'll be asking some questions if that's okay with you. Assalamu Yes, I, I wanted to ask you that uh, what more uh, needs to be done to provide relief, relief uh, more staff funding, and is it possible to adopt a child from Gaza? So the, the simple answer to your first question is what more needs to be done um, is plenty. Uh, the humanitarian operation in Gaza is effectively a non-operation. Uh, and, and that's not just we in Humanity First stating that. That is the chief of the UN aid agency, Martin Griffiths, who is the head of OCHA, Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, is clearly stated that uh, we do not have an effective humanitarian operation in Gaza. And that he's speaking not only on behalf of the United Nations, but on behalf of us, the humanitarian community. And the reason for mm. that is the continuous bombardment and the lack of access and the lack of fuel uh, and the lack of safe working for health workers, humanitarian workers, uh, effectively means it is impossible. So on the background of this, everything that you're seeing in terms of activity uh, is on the background of this context. So I guess probably between probably 1% to 3% of the needs is what is being able to be provided. Mm. And that need is, is shelter. Uh, Two million people uh, in Rafah and, and coming back from Rafah last week, I've first-hand seen the challenges of the IDP population. Mm. And then you've got your parallel crisis, which is in the north. Uh, where you you have even less aid. Uh, there, there is no infrastructure, not that there's much infrastructure in the south, uh, but there is effectively, it, it, it's like a nuclear bomb has hit the north of Gaza. Uh, Gaza, uh, Gaza government and then the north Gaza, Betul Hanun on the east and, and Betul on the west. Mm. So these are the challenges. So the needs are immense. The mm. needs are immense. Funding is required. Advocacy is required. We require people to advocate within their circles for a ceasefire to allow humanitarians to do the job that they are actioned to do. Your second question is, is a difficult one. Uh, you ask, is it possible to adopt a child? There are a huge number of orphans in Gaza and a significant number that have no living family of no living mother, father, grandparents, uncles, aunties, cousins. Uh, there is no mechanism at the moment uh, to adopt children. 
we in Humanity First are actively looking at legal, safe ways to be able to achieve that. As yet, we do not have a mechanism for that. Great. Zakhla, uh, Dr. Aziz Afiza, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Uh, but thank you so much for your contribution this morning and uh, joining us uh, and sharing your expertise. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Yes, welcome. Um, right, um, uh, we do have another uh, uh, clip uh, that we want to share. This is uh, um, a chat we had with uh, Daniel uh, Mate. Um, but um, uh, before we play that, let me just uh, thank those people who have contributed uh, to the preparation of this show. Uh, this was... Uh, uh, our producer, Barira Sohail Mansoor, uh, her uh, training producer, uh, Faiza Chikodi, uh, and the lead producer in for this program was Nurgis Nasser and Malia Abdullah. Um, and the researchers were Hala and Hana. So thanks to them. They deserve our gratitude. And we mustn't forget uh, uh, Hanmahan, who made sure that everything ran smoothly as far as the technical side of things were concerned. Uh, we discussed during the course of this uh, uh, program two particular topics. One was the Holy Prophet and his deep love uh, for the Holy Quran. And then uh, and we were just discussing uh, lately and we will continue to uh, share uh, thoughts on this, which is can Israel and Hamas achieve peace? Uh, Daniel Mate, you'll be hearing uh, in a few seconds. Um, and uh, uh, before uh, I sign off. Uh, let me also thank those people who have contributed to our understanding of the topics that uh, we were discussing. Reem Shreki, uh, Morgan Cooper, Dr. Aziz Afiz, and Jonathan Rendell. And here's Daniel Mate. Um, and with that, uh, I'm just going to be uh, signing off and saying salam alaikum to all on on my behalf and also from uh, Imam Tukir at the Khan. Uh, so until next time, uh, please join us on The Breakfast Show from uh, 7 to 9, uh, from Monday to Friday. Thank you very much. Asalaamu Alaikum. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. Um, so I would I would like to ask, um, for a first and foremost, um, what is Zionism? And are there different forms of it? Uh, how are you affected? Um, look, if you ask three different Never mind three different people on the street. If you ask three different scholars on Zionism what Zionism is, you'll probably get three different definitions. It's one of these terms that has meant a lot of different things. Yeah. And it's thrown around a lot these days, especially in this moment with what's happening there in the news constantly. Yeah. So the definition I'm about to give you is not a perfect one, nor is it an exhaustive one, but it's, I'll, tr I'll try to make it as well-rounded as I can. Of course. And I should say I'm not a scholar nor an expert. I'm an anti-Zionist Jew who grew up going to a left-wing Zionist summer camp uh, and was an educator there. And obviously I care deeply about uh, that place and the people there and I'm horrified and alarmed by what Israel's doing in the name of Zionism and, and also even worse in the name of the Jewish people. So Zionism first arose as a political idea, which is that the Jews are in fact not 
a race or a religion primarily, but a nation. And like all other nations, therefore have the right to national self-determination. And originally in its conception, and now we're talking about the end of the 19th century here, an Austrian, very assimilated Austrian Jewish thinker named Theodor Herzl, who was the father of modern Zionism, who initially was quite agnostic on the question of where that homeland should be. He was not particularly set on the Holy Land or Palestine or whatever you want to call it. He would have taken Uganda, which of course raises the question, how would the Ugandans have felt about that? But in the colonial mindset, you don't really ask questions like that. So Zionism itself in the abstract, and many people these days will try to, will try to say in objecting to anti-Zionist Jews like me or Palestinians whose very existence threatens, uh, Zionism as it exists now, they'll say, well, look, don't you want Jews to have a homeland? That's all Zionism is. The problem with that is there's no such thing as a movement for a homeland in the abstract, in theory. So in theory, sure, a homeland for everybody. However, what Zionism became very quickly was a pragmatic political project, which was trying to achieve something in the real world. And in order to do that, they had to select a place and they had to have a particular political goal. And then already within the Zionist movement by the early 20th, the early 20th century, there were already divisions. Mm-hmm. Now there were some Zionists who warned that if we turn our Zionism, which is the desire for a homeland, a connection to a land. And by this point, Palestine, the Holy land, which of course, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people have a long, long connection with. And we should say that at this time, as had been continuous for millennia, Jews were living in that land alongside Muslims and Christians. They were Arab Jews. They were Jews of the Middle East, right? They were fully integrated into the ways and traditions of that land. They just practiced a different religion. But the European Jews, who were the founders of the modern Zionist movement mm-hmm. had a choice. Do we want to go there and try to create some sort of safe provision for Jews to move there, but not fundamentally change the character of the place, mm-hmm. which would have been the solution favored by people like Ahad Ha'am and even Albert Einstein, who called themselves, I think, cultural Zionists, mm-hmm. to simplify things. That would be the term, cultural Zionism, which is to say that our people have a cultural connection to this land. We want to strengthen that connection. We want to get some protections because we're being persecuted everywhere we go. But we're fundamentally not trying to take over or kick anyone out or radically change the demographic character of the place. And these were the prophetic cultural Zionists who warned that if an attempt was made, to radically overhaul the demographic nature of the place, to try to create a modern nation state, in other words, mm-hmm. with an army that would need to be demographically majority Jewish. Well, the only way you could do that is by radically disrupting that place and that land and the peoples who live there, including the Jews who live there, who currently live in peace with their Arab, Muslim, and Christian neighbors. You can only do it by conquest, in other words. So that's what the cultural Zionists warned, and they wanted something short of a modern nation state. 
a little unclear to me exactly what they envisioned, but they envisioned some kind of shared homeland, some kind of binational or, you know, multi-faith place with Jerusalem as a multi-faith capital and that sort of thing. But what they very much didn't want was what happened. Because what happened was that the, the strain of Zionism represented by people from David Ben-Gurion, who was Israel's first prime minister, who was sort of in the left-wing socialist party, all the way to militant right-wingers, neo-fascists like uh, Zev Jabotinsky. Hmm. What they all had in common was, no, they weren't just trying to have a nice homeland. They wanted all of it. They wanted a Jewish state. They wanted a state that's as Jewish as America is American, although even that's a problematic comparison, or as French as France is, or as English as England is. They wanted to cast the Jews as a national people who deserved to be sovereign and dominant in at least one place on earth, and this was going to be it. So what does that necessitate? Well, that necessitates that you have to deal with the fact that that was just simply a radical uh, change to what actually existed, which is that the Jews in Palestine were a distinct minority. I forget the exact numbers, but a relatively small portion of the population were Jews, and they were Arab Jews. They were not European Jews. So if you wanted to transform that land into a so-called Jewish state, you'd have to do at least two things. Number one, you'd have to import a whole lot of Jews from all over the world, hmm. who many of whom at the time had no interest in going there, <laughs> was not their first choice, even if they wanted to leave their countries of origin. Yeah. For very few of them, Palestine was the top of the list. Most of them wanted to go to America or Canada or wherever. Uh, and the second thing they were going to have to do is do something about the, the non-Jewish, native, indigenous inhabitants of that land, who we today call the Palestinians. And this was a recognition from a very early stage of Zionism. And then there, and then there were diversions. Uh, or divergences, I should say, within that camp on how to deal with that. There were some more polite elements who wouldn't say out loud or in polite company, yeah, we're going to kick these people off their land. Mm -hmm. So David Ben-Gurion was someone who presented a more accommodationist face to the world. In private, he wrote and spoke about how, no, we're going to have to take this by force, obviously. And then you had people like Jabotinsky who were much more forthcoming and forthright about the fact that, listen, we're settler colonists. Of course, these people are going to resist our incursion into their land, trying to take over and trying to make ourselves the minority. They are the natives here. Now, he had a very white, European, colonialist, racist worldview, which said, of course, and we're justified in doing it. We're going to exterminate them or we're going to expel them. And that's what we have to do. But let's not look down on them so much as to think that they're going to welcome us here, given what we want to do. We're the bad guys. Yeah. You can go back and read his writings, and he essentially said this. So that wing of Zionism then made alliances and allegiances with the various larger colonial powers. So a whole complicated history I wouldn't even try to get into, mainly because I forget most of it. I studied in high school. <laughs> but I do know that 
that's the strain of Zionism that ended up forming the founding generation of mostly white Europeans who became the first Israelis, who became the first Israeli leaders. And among them were Ben-Gurion, Moshe Dayan, and then people we know from a much more modern or contemporary area like Yitzhak Rabin, Shimon Perez, and all these other folks. And many of them, and Yitzhak Shamir, uh, Netanyahu's father, I believe, was part of that founding generation. And many or most of these men were in fighting forces like the Haganah, the Irgun, the Stern Gang, many of whom engaged in frank terrorist activities, just unapologetic terrorism against British targets, against Palestinian Arab targets. And they did what they needed to do with the help of the great powers to uh, create facts on the ground that would lead to what they wanted, which was a majoritarian Jewish state, which was then established in 1948, amid and after a massive ethnic cleansing campaign where something like 750,000 Palestinians were expelled, many were killed, there were massacres, and it was everything you would expect from a project that understood itself to be about settling and colonizing a land on the grounds that we deserve it because we're better than these people or more human than these people or we've suffered more or they can go somewhere else, whatever the justifications were. Yeah. So in terms of what is Zionism now, to me, the other kind of Zionism I mentioned, the cultural Zionism, which I'm more sympathetic to, is sort of a relic of the past. At this point, the nationalist, militarist Zionism that says Israel must be a Jewish state and we must maintain that now is really the only Zionism in town, the only game in town. Hmm. And it requires that you never really allow the Palestinians who were expelled to have their day in court because all refugees have the right to return under international law. All occupied peoples have the right to resist under international law. And so insisting on the vision of a Jewish state now is not just merely to say the Jews deserve a homeland. You can say the Jews deserve a homeland. The question is at whose expense? Yeah. And so at this point to me, to say you're still a Zionist, which means you'll privilege the, the Jewish character of the country that is there over the democratic nature of the country that is there. Mm -hmm. And you'll privilege Jews' right to quote-unquote return there, even if I, Daniel, have no genetic lineage to it that I can track. My family is from Lithuania and Poland and Hungary, yeah. but I have the right to go there. But if you're going to privilege my right as a North American, as many North American Jews do, to go and become a citizen or even a settler in the West Bank tomorrow over, you know, Mohammed or Salma's right to go and, yeah. you know, visit the land where their grandfather's home was that he still has the deed to, well, then you're basically protecting and safeguarding an ethno-nationalist project. And that, to me, is the dividing line right now between Zionism and, and the forces that want to dismantle it. Yeah. Well, I think that was a very comprehensive response um, to what is Zionism. Um, thank you so much for that, for that response. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, if I continue on. Uh, we see that religion has incorrectly been utilized as a scapegoat to justify the actions of the government. 
um, who have used people's funding without their knowledge. Um, how can we regain our democratic freedoms? Who is we? Uh, we as a people. Um, so we see that um, in terms of the West as well. Um, the, in terms of Israel and its democracy, how it, how it uh, preaches of being the only democratic power in the Middle East, um, do we still see that in today's society? Do, do, do we still see Israel as a democratic power? Well, again, I have to ask, who's we? Many people still do. I don't. The U.S. has claimed to be spreading democracy for yeah. decades in its foreign policy. Its whole shtick is democracy promotion. Well, you have to take a look and say, does that wash? You know, does that line up with reality? First of all, uh, is the U.S. in the business of allowing other countries to govern themselves as they'd like, to choose their own leaders, to decide what kind of society they would like to be? Or does the U.S. regularly, brutally intervene in other people's affairs? And if you want to look at Iran or Cuba or Vietnam or throughout Central and Latin America, the answer is an obvious no. So the claim of democracy promotion is just a branding exercise. It's actually got nothing to do with democracy. Who are the U.S.'s allies all over the world? Are they the democratically elected governments or are they the right-wing fascist juntas and coup governments and you know, places that brutalize their own people? So a government, a, 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 a country claiming democracy as its raison d'etre and its ideology is less interesting to me than taking a look at their actual record. So Israel is an example of a country that one of its big selling points to the world is we are the only democracy in the Middle East. Yeah. And it's true that in some ways it has strong democratic elements. It has a parliament, it has elections, it has a coalition government. It even allows Palestinian Arabs who happen to be citizens of Israel, mm -hmm. of whom I forget how many hundred thousands there are, some mm -hmm not insignificant minority of the country, yeah. uh, they can vote and they even have one or two members of the Knesset, you know? Mm. Uh, and then this is trotted out as evidence that Israel is a shining democratic country. There's a few problems with that. Number one, any human rights group, including or especially the Israeli ones, will tell you that Palestinian Arabs are not full-fledged citizens. Even if they have voting rights, there's all kinds of restrictions on their ability to play a meaningful role in society, from their education system to the second-class housing, civil services, and all kinds of stuff. Hmm. But even more than that, uh, the Israeli human rights group Betselem, which is an excellent Jewish-run organization, which has been reporting on Israel's violations in the West Bank and Gaza, for decades, recently put out a report called From the River to the Sea. Oh, sorry, what was it called? A clear-cut case of apartheid, Jewish supremacy from the river to the sea, from the Jordan to the Mediterranean, something like that. Mm -hmm. Meaning that the Israeli regime doesn't just constitute the borders of 1948 Israel. Mm -hmm. So if you only look at Israel proper, you could say, well, okay, there's an Arab minority. And they're made up of refugees and or people who weren't kicked out in 48 and their descendants, and they have some rights. So you could look at that as kind of a Jim Crow light sort of situation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they have some rights, they don't have full rights. 
On the other hand, that's not all that Israel controls. Israel controls Gaza from the outside. It has effective control of Gaza, has since it, quote-unquote, withdrew in 2005. And it completely controls every aspect of life in the West Bank through its puppet government in the Palestinian Authority. And speaking of democracy, why is Gaza under bombardment now? Why was it under siege for 20 years? Why did uh, those men do what they did on October 7th? Well, there was an election in Gaza in 2005. Yeah. And the Palestinians, in fact, in, in, in Gaza and the West Bank, and the Palestinians made a terrible mistake, which is that they did democracy wrong. They chose the wrong government. Hillary Clinton herself, who was Secretary of State, uh, I guess, soon after that, but she was a senator at the time, said, we made a mistake in not rigging that election. Jimmy Carter, the former U.S. president, who has a foundation for democratic oversight, they've overseen many, many elections, supervised many elections in the Middle East, and he said that this was among the freest and the fairest the region had ever seen, and Hamas won. To everyone's surprise, they even won in the West Bank. And the U.S. and Israel weren't going to allow that. So democracy is great until you elect someone we don't like. And they fomented a coup. And then they imposed a brutal blockade and siege on Gaza where they couldn't uproot Hamas. So this whole democracy thing, we can just dismiss it at face value. It's not what Israel is about. If Israel was a democracy, then it would have to grant full rights we would have to grant citizenship to the, what is it, five or seven million Palestinians living under occupation. And you'd have a situation of roughly equal population where the Palestinian Arab population grows faster than the Jewish one, which means it's the end of the Jewish state. So you once again come down to the choice between do you want a democratic state with full freedom and equal rights for everybody, or do you want a Jewish state? The idea that you can have a Jewish democratic state is a pipe dream whose time has come and gone. And people who are still clinging to it are really going to try to struggle to square that circle because it, those two concepts just can't coexist anymore if they ever could. Hmm. Well, thank you again for Very concise. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, we see the relationship between Israel and Hamas evolve over time. Um, and there are some who say that this is all justifiable because Israel tried to seek peaceful agreements with Gaza, but the latter did not cooperate. What would you, what would you respond to that? Is, 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 would, would that be a correct thing to say? The claim is that Israel tried to achieve peace agreements with Gaza? Yes, yes. Yeah, well, uh, I would say that's just simply untrue. And I'm not going to present myself as some kind of historical scholar here. I, I would refer people to the work of the preeminent Gaza scholar, Norman Finkelstein, Jewish-American Holocaust yep. survivor, descendant um, scholar who wrote the definitive book on this, Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom. Mm -hmm. You read the Israeli historian, Ilan Pape. You could read uh, Palestinian-American scholar, Rashid Khalidi from uh, Columbia University. They all have very comprehensive books on the subject. But yeah. the idea that Israel made peace overtures to Gaza is patently absurd, but it's a, con it's a continuation of a trope that I have been hearing ever since I was a young Jewish kid going to Hebrew school and Zionist summer camp. The, the classic 
uh, smear against the Palestinians was summed up by the great Israeli diplomat, Abba Eben, who was seen as sort of a tough-minded but fair liberal Israeli. I think he said it in the 70s. And he said, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And that is the classic Hasbara talking point, Hasbara being the Hebrew word for explanation, also propaganda, hmm. that somehow Israel has made all these generous offers over the years and the Palestinians have rejected it, starting with the partition plan in 1947, that if the Palestinians had had any sense and any generosity, they would accept it. It's way too long a record and I'm way too amateur of a historian to get into it definitively. But if you actually look into it, you'll see that in each of these cases, these quote-unquote generous peace plans were not anything like what they're sold as. In fact, they were insulting and that the honest Israelis, mm -hmm. uh, you know, will come out and say, if I was Palestinian, I would have rejected it. So, for example, one that's often trotted out is the Camp David Accords mm -hmm. in the late um, 90s, early 2000s in Egypt. And that's often... Um, trotted out as the case where Yasser Arafat walked away from a generous two-state solution. Well, Shlomo Ben-Ami, the former Israeli foreign minister who was present at those talks, said explicitly on Democracy Now! in 2008, if I was Palestinian, I would have walked away from that too. There was no state being offered there. Just like Oslo, this was supposed to be the peace process. Well, it was all process and no peace, as Edward Said said back in the day. So in each of these cases, there is the mythology around these offers, but if you actually look at them, they were always undercutting the possibility of any kind of sovereign Palestinian state. And that's the two-state solution, which would have been a huge compromise to the Palestinians, giving up the majority of historic Palestine and accepting a Palestinian state in some parts of it. But Israel, as a matter of policy, ever since 1967, when they occupied the West Bank and Gaza, has been settling those lands, dividing them up yeah. so that the areas of Palestine, uh, Palestinian habitation are these cantons separated like holes in Swiss cheese, and there's no contiguous land to make a state out of. And Benjamin Netanyahu recently came out and, like his ideological forebear, Jabotinsky, was very forthright about it. He said, I'm very proud to have blocked the creation of a Palestinian state all these years. I've deliberately done that. So as far as Gaza goes, there isn't even a pretense of offers of peace. What, what people will say is, oh, Israel withdrew in 2005. Well, yeah. or 2006, I forget which. Maybe 2000, no, 2005, before the election. Well, really what they did is they redeployed. They realized that they were getting nothing out of having settlers there. It was a pain in the arse uh, to maintain it. Uh, they removed 8,000 settlers in a... Uh, highly publicized uh, kind of stunt yeah. and, uh, and, and installed 12,000 new settlers in the West Bank, which has much more fertile land, water, all that kind of stuff, much more strategically valuable to them. Yeah. Uh, and then when the Palestinians made the mistake of electing the wrong government, Israel imposed a near 20 medieval, harsh, illegal, inhuman, uh, blockade and siege where they controlled the import and export and entry and exit of everyone and everything from the outside. So they basically, the wardens of this prison camp left the prison camp, slammed the gates shut, locked it from the outside and said, you govern yourself. And um, 
but meanwhile, Israel controlled every aspect of life there, the waterways, the sewage, the electricity, everything. Yeah. So if, you, if that's your idea of a generous peace offer, well, you must not think very much of the people to whom you're making that offer. You must think they're really not fundamentally human beings. And if you don't think they're human beings, then I don't think those human beings are obliged to deal with you in good faith. Yeah. And I think if we put ourselves in their shoes just for a second, you don't have to like Hamas to hear what I'm saying. Yeah. If you put yourselves in the shoes of the Palestinians, you know, we Jews know what it is. I am the son of a Holocaust survivor who was born in the Budapest ghetto. And so I know what a ghetto is. A ghetto almost claims my father and grandparents' life. Yeah. Just like Auschwitz, the death camp, claimed my great-grandparents' life. Yeah. So I, I have historical memory in me of what it is for a group of people to live in an enclosed area that they cannot leave, that a hostile power that wants them gone controls from the outside and can really toy with their existence by controlling the import of food or or the lack thereof, the yeah. quality of the water, all that kind of stuff. So the idea that somehow these people are supposed to be grateful for something to their tormentor is frankly monstrous and uh, deeply racist because we would never apply that same standard to ourselves. The final question I wanted to ask uh, was regarding the ICG case that's currently uh, occurring, currently happening. And I just mm-hmm. want to know your thoughts mm-hmm. about them, just your opinion. Well, once again, I'm not an expert in these matters. You know, I'm just a, a concerned citizen um, of the world. And I have to say that as someone who has been watching this for a long time, uh, like many, many people, um, just on an emotional level, it's deeply moving to see really anyone bring Israel to account in an international court of justice setting. Israel's acted with tremendous impunity for decades, thanks largely to the, its allegiance with the world's hegemonic imperial power, the United States. Um, and so it's a radical thing to see its leaders dragged in front of the world to have to answer for some of the most horrific crimes we've witnessed in, in my lifetime that I can certainly remember. The fact that it was South Africa who did it makes it extra poetic for a number of reasons. Number one, obviously, this is the people who knows something about apartheid and about withstanding uh, a sort of, if not genocidal, then politicidal onslaught of a you know, minority yeah. uh, government that wants to uh, obliterate them as a political force. And even more poignantly, among the apartheid South African white regime's closest bosom buddies in the world was the state of Israel. Yeah. And, um, of course, the South Africans know this. Uh, military training, military arms, deals, all kinds of alliances behind the scenes are now known. And so there's a kind of vindication in it. And look, the Palestinians have just been so thoroughly neglected and abandoned and betrayed and forsaken by really the entire world, um, including, of course, the governments of most of the Arab nations. They've been fickle friends at best. Yeah. And um, 
even though they have a lot of sympathizers and well-wishers and people who stand in solidarity with them all over the world among the general population, there's another aspect where democracy doesn't really mean much because what we want from our governments doesn't result in any change in foreign policy. And I'm living in a country and I come from a country where my tax dollars go to fund these barbaric horrors that Israel's inflicting. So, you know, I don't know what it's going to lead to. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the court will rule. I don't know what they'll be able to enforce, even if they do roll in favor of South Africa's case. I think South Africa made a very, very compelling case, both on rational, factual grounds, but also on emotional, moral grounds. It's pretty undeniable. So we'll have to see what happens. But certainly the act of it happening is a game changer. Um, yeah. And I don't think, I think Israel's crossed a certain kind of Rubicon uh, in terms of its reputation in the world, but it'll never be able to salvage. And I think that's a very good thing because um, the sooner the facade of an enlightened uh, Jewish democracy with the most moral army in the world and all this other nonsense crumbles away and people see it for the falsehood that it is, uh, the sooner we can get about doing the work of dismantling the oppressive structures that are keeping the untenable status quo in place that provides the opposite of security for not only Palestinians, but also the Jews of that land. They're not any, yeah. you know, I, I, I'd much be, a, I'd much rather be a Jew where I am or where you are than to be a Jew there, quite frankly, and which undercuts the whole professed reason for the Jewish state. So yeah. as long as Israel insists on holding on to its ethno supremacist character, there will be no true security, which can only come from true peace, which can only come from at least some level of basic justice. And I appreciate South Africa very much for being really the first to strike a blow for justice that Israel has had to feel and face and reckon with. And it'll be interesting to see what happens from here. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you so much um, for your time, uh, Mr. Daniel Mate. Thank you so much for your enlightening responses and I know our listeners will benefit greatly um, from what you have said today. So thank you so much for your time.